he's back and better than ever, Hugh Montgomery. We had a chat yesterday. You, you and I were just involved in the cauldron, uh, yeah. a session on sustainability, environmental yep. issues. Um, we can't announce the winner at this point. Yep. So they're not with us, which is a real shame, but my God, you've got a lot of knowledge in this area and it matters. So let's put some meat on the bones. Yep. Let's do the five W's. Why, what, how, why, and if we don't do something about it, what the heck's going to happen? Well, that's the simple bit. So um, my... Well, the first thing we need to define what sustainability is, and I hate the word, okay. um, because it means virtually nothing. Uh, because people, if one more person tells me that they're going to be more sustainable, I'll throw them out of a window. Because it's being, a sort of being more sustainable, to the point of sustaining, really, well, it's a bit, it's a bit like being a bit pregnant. I mean, it's 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 sustainable or it's not sustainable. More sustainable is still unsustainable so let's stop talking about being more sustainable because it doesn't exist right you either and if it's not sustainable it means it will stop without your control of it right if, it, if you can't sustain it it's going to stop so the bit that i focus on mostly is carbon and climate change and so what do we mean by what what stops if we don't get sustainable on that and the answer is all life on earth human civilization and your life and the problem is we've ignored warnings now from 167 years ago, John Tyndall warning us about what would befall us from burning fossil fuels. And we ignored it. We ignored Kissinger in the 70s, who told us that we were in trouble. We had the COP negotiations starting in the early 90s, ever more strident. And we ignored all their warnings. Eight years ago, they said that unless there was immediate action to reduce carbon emissions, that the world would have no hope. And they said that eight years ago. And we still didn't do anything. The IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, a year and a half ago said, unless we take immediate action, we have missed a rapidly closing window to secure a livable world. Okay? This isn't about future generations. This is not being more sustainable. If you're under 50, this is about whether you will live. Because we're down to the last 15 years of human civilization if we don't act right now. And that means we've got to act at massive pace and scale. That's what I'm talking about for sustainability. That's the issue and the challenge we're facing. Fabulous. We are off to a fiery, full-on discussion. This is good. Help me get a little bit further. If, if I were to declare my biases, I rather like my comfy life. I am what has been described in Canada as a blue-eyed Arab in that I live in Alberta. It's a, an yep. entirely entirely innocent comment i promise you mm -hmm. well except it isn't innocent because our economy is built on is built on pet petrochemicals and let's let's be honest these six thousand products that are made out of petrochemicals yeah. so can we live without them I, I hear you that we must uh what does god do we have to say blueprint what what does the blueprint look like uh well the blueprint's much, much, much more aggressive now than it ever was before. It's by not acting, we've made things worse and worse and worse. So if we felt, well, let's put some numbers on it. You wanted some numbers. The first problem is the number we've attached is one that is pretty useless. We've increased global surface temperature on average by 1.2 degrees Celsius since pre-industrial times. Doesn't sound much, does it? 1.2 on average. Does that sound worrying? Doesn't, does it? Doesn't to me. Until you think of the amount of energy it's taken to cook an entire planet by 1.2 degrees, especially when 96% of the energy has gone into the oceans and isn't counted. We're currently adding eight Hiroshima bombs of energy a second to our atmosphere that isn't going away. 
And this is going to last for a long, long time. So a fifth of the CO2 emit today will still be cooking our planet in 33,000 years' time, and 7% will still be cooking our planet in 100,000 years' time. This is colossal energy gain. And this is why we're seeing global temperatures rising. It's why we're seeing Arctic sea ice melting. It's why we're seeing Antarctic ice disappearing. It's why we're seeing increased extreme weather events, because you don't get any weather if there's no energy in an atmospheric system. The more energy you add, the more extreme weather events you'll get, and the more extreme they will be. And that's why the world is on fire, or is flooding, um, or is facing drought. It's why crops are failing. It's why Italy lost 6.8 billion euros last summer when its crops failed and its rivers ran dry. It's why Portugal has had to spend 3.8 billion euros this year alone to try to support its crops. Um, we're seeing an unravelling of society now. And the scale of action? If we were to stick to the Paris deal, we need to reduce our CO2 emissions now by 10.2% across every single thing we do and buy, every year, year on year. And even that won't be enough. So again, a lot of rewindable, re-listenable points there. Cooking the whole planet 1.2 degrees that one landed we've had cop what 20 28 this year four, again, people have flown their private jets in and had a jolly talked uh, virtue signaled um you know we can't leave it up to our politicians uh, we've got to correct. do stuff ourselves. correct but uh, you know I, I, I almost worry if we get to the point of no return that then even worse nihilism kicks in and that people say oh well, it's too far gone there's no point doing anything well um, there are three points to make on that one. So let's deal with the COP negotiations first of all. Um, you would be quite right that the COP negotiations are worse than um, harmless. Um, they are a distraction. It's the magician waving their hand as it goes up to the right when all the action's happening down on the left. It's a distraction and it convinces people that someone is doing something. Now, this year's COP, for instance, well, let's go back. We've had to say we had to peak emissions, OK? And the can keeps getting kicked down the road. Paris said we had to peak by 2020, which we didn't do. The next deal said we would commit to a peak of emissions in 2025. Last year's COP removed any target for peaking emissions at all. This year's COP, the president of which is the president of the oil company of the UEA that's hosting the COP, you're not even allowed to talk about reducing emissions. This year, we'll not even discuss reducing emissions. So this is like marriage guidance, where the two people just don't want to be married. You've got people like Russia, who want to export oil, coal and gas. You've got Poland that wants to export oil. You've got your own country that wants to dig out tar sands and drill in the Arctic. You've got the UEA and all the Gulf states. They will not let there be a deal. And it ain't going to happen. So you're right, that's the bad news. It's not them. To deal with your other two points, is there a reason for acting um, or is it too late? Well, there's a pragmatic answer to that. If you don't act, your fate is certain. It's when the ship goes down, if you go, ah, oh, I'm stuffed then, that's it, then you are definitely going to drown. But if you go, I am going to swim, I am going to find a life raft, there is going to be something for me, you're in with a shout, but you are in no chance, no chance at all if you don't act. The next bit is why would you act? I don't know, Pete. You've got kids? Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, there's one answer, right? Because they will die, and they'll die within the next couple of decades, and they'll die horribly, unless you do something. Is there a parent on the planet 
that wouldn't do everything and anything and throw themselves in the wire for their own children. Finally then, is it hopeless? In honesty, it probably is, but could health do it? Now, this is the really exciting part, actually, and you and I were in the cauldron this morning, and really, as you say, some pretty inspirational people talking And very balanced. Very balanced. Cogent. One of the bits we know is that healthcare around the world is responsible for around 5.2% of global greenhouse gas emissions. So you might just go, well, what's the point? You know, if we got rid of all our emissions, it will make no difference. But here's the interesting part. Good question. What percentage of global domestic product is spent directly on healthcare? On average, so take the whole world, what percentage last year of all every $100 spent, how many dollars went on directly on healthcare? Well, it's a good question because you can pass the numbers a number of different ways and you can argue that healthcare versus social care versus... Just they, health, they direct healthcare. So we're just about hospitals, GPs. Uh, what I can tell you is in Canada, health and education represent the vast amount of the budget and, and probably 30 to 40% for both of those ticket items. So globally... Rich and poor countries averaged out, it's 11.7% of GDP. Okay. But if you then add in, say, a company like Reckitt Global Health, okay, they make Durex and Dettol. And you could probably say that those are healthcare products. I think we would all agree they probably are. If you start adding those sorts of products in, it's a quarter of global domestic product. Right. Now, if we move aggressively to decarbonize health, everything else changes because the scale of the movement of money is so substantial that the hedge funds and pension funds all move. If we say we demand decarbonisation of 50% scope one to three from the companies that supply us, and they enact that, the cardboard boxes used by the major drug companies in Great Britain are manufactured by the same people who make cardboard boxes for cornflakes. You've instantly decarbonised all supply chains with cardboard in for cardboard boxes. If we demand it for glass, for the amples, we decarbonise glass supply. If we just build it into the contracts of what we do, we make massive changes. And furthermore, on individual action, 1.4 million people work for the NHS. In every country, there's a lot of healthcare workers. If we all move our bank accounts to the banks that don't fund fossil fuels, we all move our electricity suppliers to 100% renewable suppliers. We all make those. That's a lot of people. It's a lot of spending power that moves. And the hedge funds and the pension funds will respond appropriately. So the good news part of this is we can do it. And healthcare workers, by and large, are smart enough to get it, morally committed enough to make the right decisions in their lives, and have the financial capacity to be able to make those choices. So that's the exciting part for me. We can do this. That is the exciting part, and it's, uh, thank goodness, there is some excitement and, and some inspiration and some get on with it. Yeah. Because I worry, without it, we're just as tokenistic as we accuse the politicians of being. And mm. you, you get, oh, no, no, I've done my bit for the environment, I recycle. <laughs> I've done my bit, I went and got some new light bulbs for the house, tick, job done, now let's get back to planning my five European trips this year and right, uh, so go to my second and third home. And you're right, it has to be necessary and sufficient. So if you haven't yet, you, Peter, or anyone who's listening to this on your carbon footprint, go online to a, a proper, decent, deep carbon footprint calculator and it will make it clear to you where your big costs are. It, it's For someone like yourself as an, as an academic, it's almost certainly going to be flying. That's going to be the biggest, quickest, simplest way to you probably to halve your carbon footprint. There's going to be some simple stuff with transport, heating, power generation and food that you can rapidly make a big difference. The rest of it is really, really, really hard because it's embedded stuff in the food you buy, etc., etc. Um, that's where we have to work with industry to make those changes. 
Um, one of the cauldron, uh, we were talking about them just now, weren't we, Peter? Yep. But one person there was talking about changing enteral feed to a plant-based enteral feed. Now, she'd done the carbon costs on that. Really, really deeply impressive. That's something where it, a company would do it. If we as the intensive care community went to them and said, we want a low-carbon plant-based feed and we'll buy it, guess what? They'll make it. I'm hoping to see those cauldron abstracts published. Yeah. They were good. Uh, they weren't... How can I say this? As, as one of the judges, I thought it would be easy to do a few yeah buts you haven't thought about the following. But as you say, the presentation on moving to P-based, the presentations on measuring the carbon, the presentation, it was just exceedingly well done. And so inspiring, not just because it was fun and well presented, but actually mm. there is stuff that can be done, must be done. And yeah, and I think it's very, I mean, one of the points that was being made, of course, was in intensive care, what can we do? It's very difficult not to use a swab or a syringe or a central line or whatever else. And, and certainly for me... Um, the, the, the quickest win on emissions is on the thing that you don't manufacture or buy or procure, right? You don't have to reduce it because you're just not doing it at all. One of my big concerns, and you raised this question, was about survival and longevity and so forth. Yeah. We are putting a lot of people on our intensive care units every year that, in my view, shouldn't be there. We are prolonging a death, not saving a life. And I'm not sure, actually, that it is right for someone who is dementing bed-bound, carer-dependent, with bad hearts or metastatic cancer, that they should end up on an intensive care unit. Actually, they should end up somewhere else where they've treated with compassion. That would be a, a win, I think, as well, all around. We've got to stop doing things that don't help people terribly much and focus on the things that actually do. Well, and you, you heard me sort of stumble around that mm. question in the session, not wanting to come across as too sort of... Um I don't know, deterministic or, or, or Orwellian or, or what word am I looking for? Malthusian, Malthusian I think, is yeah. the word I'm after. But you are right, Pete. I mean, the truth is that the first billion people after 540 million years of multi-celled evolution and 4.2 billion of life on the planet, it took that long to get 1 billion people. And that happened in 1823. And it took 33 years to add another billion. But we now add another billion every 12 years. Yeah, Absolutely. And, and you are right, we cannot sustain that. Not when they all want to live a Western lifestyle, which... Of course they do. Of yeah. course, everyone would. We do. We all do. We can't sustain that. It's not possible. Leon, it's been a good presentation. <laughs> it certainly has. I've been sitting in awe. <laughs> the best presentations are the ones that challenge your biases, move your thinking oh, forward, yeah. remind you the best time to have done something would have been 10 years ago. The second best time is right now. Hugh, thank you very much. There's a lot to chew on here. This is a really important topic, and I'm really glad you presented it so cogently and with the appropriate level of passion and uh, urgency. Thanks for having me, Peter. Cheers. Cheers.